last Saturday night, my family and I caught up for dinner with some old friends. They're not a church-going family, but halfway through dinner, um, our friends told me that their son, Spencer, had a question for me. Spencer is six, and Spencer does scripture at school, and he's often got questions about God and the universe. I don't know if you've got much experience in this area, but questions from six-year-olds are often very tricky to answer. Adult questions tend to follow a more predictable pattern, I've found, but questions from six-year-olds can be about anything. So I took a deep breath and I tentatively asked Spencer what his question was. Uh, Was he going to ask me who made God or why the sky is blue or what God's middle name is or whether there'll be Wi-Fi in heaven. All of these were possibilities. But as it was, he had a question which was very easy to answer. He wanted to know if God ever sleeps. I breathed a sigh of relief. I was able to share with him what Psalm 121 clearly teaches, that God never sleeps because he's always awake to watch over and care for his people. Uh, Spencer seemed pretty pleased and satisfied with the answer. You see, even six-year-olds seek for wisdom. They want to know how the world works. They want to know what life is all about. They want to know what God is like. And of course, for those who are humble and curious... The pursuit of wisdom continues all the way through life. That's true now as it was in the days when Ecclesiastes was written. Wisdom is the topic of Ecclesiastes 7, but this is not the first time Ecclesiastes has spoken about the subject. Back in chapter 1, the teacher explained that he sought to explore life under the heavens with wisdom. And he was very glad to report that his wisdom and knowledge grew. That's a very joyful thing, isn't it? Like Spencer getting an answer to his question, so too the adult who grows in wisdom rejoices to be wiser today than they were the day before. But Ecclesiastes chapter 1 finished with a more sober assessment of the gaining of wisdom. This is chapter 1 verse 18. It says, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, The more knowledge, the more grief. So yes, it's a joyful thing to learn, to understand, to become wise, but that's not the whole story, is it? Sometimes knowledge is a weight on the shoulders and a shadow in the heart. Sometimes wisdom brings us into grief because the world is not always a happy place. And that's what the teacher wants to remind us of as we come to the start of this chapter. And I think the first six verses of this chapter are some kind of introduction. And in these six verses, he says some pretty interesting things. You would have heard them as Huntley read just now. Basically, I think this is a meditation on the relationship between wisdom and sadness. Things on the surface may seem, may seem sweet, like perfume. But wisdom is concerned with deeper things. Death is one of those things. Death is a reality we must all contend with. So the teacher says that you could go to a party and you could 
eat and dance and have a very happy time, but going to a funeral will make you wiser because it causes you to think more about what really matters. And he says, whilst there's a place for laughter, when it comes to wisdom, frustration's even better because it reflects that a person is thinking about what life is actually like. In this introduction to the chapter, I don't think the teacher's saying that you should never wear perfume or that you should never feast with your friends or that you should never laugh your head off. He's just saying that if you want to be wise, you need to face reality. If you want to be wise, you need to look death in the face and you need to see clearly the frustration to which God has subjected the world. And you need to be ready to weep and mourn. In these opening verses, the teacher invites us to take off our rose-coloured glasses. And then, having issued that invitation, the teacher offers us a series of wisdom sayings. In many respects, I think Ecclesiastes 7 is like a chapter from the book of Proverbs. There's not necessarily a unifying through line but rather it's a fragmentary collection of wise thoughts. And I want to briefly take you through the ones that I see here now. And I I think there are 10 distinct sayings. I've listed them on your outline. Firstly, verse 7. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. That's actually a very interesting perspective on corruption. Uh, It reminds us that when one person takes advantage of another by deception or when a person uses their... Uh, authority or their money to get what they want, it's not just others who are harmed and it's not just the system that becomes corrupt, it's the guilty person themselves who becomes corrupted. That's what he's saying. Corrupt behaviour actually changes a person. It makes them more likely to do the same thing again or worse. Corrupt conduct is a fast track to becoming a fool. Then he has a reflection on patience and pride. Verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning and patience is better than pride. It's easy to puff out your chest before you do something and to pronounce how well you're going to do. This is a piece of cake. I'm going to smash this. But success is only measured at the end, isn't it? The bluster or promise at the beginning is just hot air. But the finished product or task, that's the satisfying end. So patiently working on something to bring it to its conclusion or patiently waiting for something to be concluded, that's wisdom. Then verse 9, slowness to anger. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. The fool, he says, is the one who sits with anger every day. The one who is quickly provoked. I guess by implication, the wise person is the one who takes a deep breath before responding. The one who chooses to be calm and careful rather than to speak rash words with a raised voice. And I guess if you're anything like me, it's not hard to think of times you've been the fool here when you've even surprised yourself at how quickly anger has bubbled up within you. But of course, we know the Father who is always slow to anger and we can learn from him. 
and we have the spirit of that father's son within us producing gentleness and patience and kindness and self-control and so the path to wisdom here is the path of keeping in step with his spirit Next, the teacher has a saying about pining for the past. Verse 10, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. This is perhaps especially the folly of the middle-aged and older, those of us who prefer cassettes to Spotify. We who can easily remember simpler and better times and who are very fond of telling those younger than us how good those times were. But the teacher's warning here is not just about how to avoid being a grumpy old man, note to self. It's not just about pining for the olden days, this verse. It's also about not pining for the old ways. I think it's impossible to read this verse, verse 10, and not to think of uh, that verse, that passage that Pat read out at the start of the service tonight, the Israelites in the wilderness telling Moses that they wish they could go back to Egypt. You know, despite the fact that their life in Egypt was a life of slavery, the Israelites rated it as better than the Lord discipline in the wilderness. But their assessment, of course, in that moment of frustration that we read again, was was clearly foolish. Under the Lord's hand, they'd been rescued. Even in the wilderness, they were being provided for, and they were headed to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And that story is in the Bible to remind us that we must never think the days before we were a Christian were better than these days. Sure, you you may not have known the loving discipline of the Lord back then, but back then you were a slave. And that should never be forgotten. Uh, Next, in verses 11 and 12, the teacher says something wise about wisdom itself. I think his main idea here is that wisdom is good not only for the present, like having money in your pocket or a roof over your head, but it's good for the future, like an inheritance. Wisdom not only has benefits in the here and now, it also has the power, note the word, to preserve a person through the years. And wisdom even has the power, as we know, to preserve a person into eternity. Then we come to verses 13 and 14 and I actually read out those verses a few weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 3 but they're so important I want us to pause over them again now. The point of verse 13 is that God's sovereignty in the world, his rule of the world is irresistible. Verse 13 says, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? And he may know what lies ahead but we don't and this is the point he's making in verse 14. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. He says we should relish the good times with happiness, but we should also submit ourselves to God's will in the bad times. Wisdom insists that we accept every moment in life as coming to us from the hands of God. Now, I realise that many people today, including many Christians, just refuse to believe that. But what we find here is the consistent teaching of the Bible from the beginning to the end. And my own word of testimony would be that I'm incredibly grateful 
to learn that God is in control of the bad times as well as the good. Because the alternative would be to accept that bad things just happen randomly and mercilessly and God can do nothing about it. And I don't want to live in a world like that. But what the Bible teaches is that I can actually trust God to be working out his good purposes even through the bad times. And I find a lot of comfort in that. And I hope you do too. Next we have some wise sayings about extremes. Verses 15 to 18. I think these are perhaps the most difficult verses in the passage to grasp. Let me read them to you again. Verse 15, In this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. He says being righteous doesn't protect you from death and being wicked is no guarantee you'll die young. But nevertheless, he sees a correlation between foolish wickedness and death, early death, just like he sees a correlation between effortful righteousness and burnout. And it's with these observations that the teacher urges us to avoid extremes. Now, I don't think it's as if he sees a little bit of wickedness as a good thing. I think the teacher would condemn all wickedness. But he does want us to appreciate the special dangers that come with surrendering oneself to a wickedly foolish way of life. And I think we know what that means, don't we? We, we know people who've been caught up in a very foolish lifestyle that sees their lives cut tragically short. We know that story. And when it comes to righteousness and wisdom, he actually has something similar to say. Again, I don't think the teacher would claim that there's a limit to the goodness and beauty of true righteousness and true wisdom. But I think he's reflecting here on the person who tries so hard to be morally faultless that they wear themselves out in the process. And perhaps the person who seeks wisdom so relentlessly that they become obsessed and exhausted. Perhaps these are people who haven't accepted what he goes on to say in verse 20, people who haven't admitted the limits of their own righteousness. Perhaps they are people who haven't accepted what the teacher also says about the limits of human understanding. And as he's always reminding us in Ecclesiastes, it's the fear of God, there again in verse 18, that will teach a person this necessary humility. Well, in verse 19, we then have a saying about the power of wisdom. He's just finished reminding us of wisdom's limits, but he's quick to clarify that he still sees immense value in wisdom. And here the emphasis is on the way that wisdom is stronger than authority. That's an interesting thing to consider, isn't it? Better to be a wise Parliament House cleaner than a foolish Prime Minister. Verse 19... Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. And then, as if one clarification requires another, in verse 20, he makes the limits of righteousness as clear as possible. This is verse 20, and it really couldn't be clearer. 
Indeed, he says, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. And finally, verses 21 and 22. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. This is a very shrewd comment about the looseness of the human tongue, isn't it? He's making the same observation that many others have made, including famously James, the New Testament author. Uh, Who can tame the tongue, James asks. Who indeed? And given that we're caught out by that question as much as the next person, the teacher urges us here to be very careful what we tune our ears to. If we listen to everything, we may hear people speak about us in the same way that we've sometimes spoken about others. There are the ten different wisdom sayings that we have in the middle of this chapter, and I think each one of them repays careful thought and attention, and I'd encourage you to go home and reread them and pray over them. But as best I can tell, I think the last seven verses of the chapter act as some kind of conclusion to this extended discussion of wisdom. Certainly verse 23 has a concluding kind of ring to it. Verse 23 says, All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I'm determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? Just like we saw at the end of chapter 6 last week, the teacher wants to round this chapter out with an expression of his great humility. He approaches the task of finding wisdom, he says, with real determination, and yet he quickly confronts his limitations. And this too is wisdom, knowing how little we know. Nevertheless, as he says in verse 25, he's given his mind to searching out wisdom and understanding wickedness and folly. And what has he found? What is his conclusion? In short, I think, in this final section of the chapter, his answer is very simple. What he's found? Sin. He talks in verse 26 about a sinful woman who ensnares a sinful man. This seems to be a reference to the destructive power of sexual immorality. It's a force for particular evil in the world that he feels constrained to draw particular attention to. And those of us who have been touched in some way by this sin will be quick to agree with his assessment of it. More bitter than death, he says. And those of us who are tempted in this way will do very well to hear that assessment and to let it sink in and not to permit the evil one to persuade us that it could be thrilling rather than destructive or that it could be freeing rather than enslaving as it actually is. Here is a word of wisdom which our society right now desperately needs. And it seems to me that if people today were more wise, even in this one area, the world would certainly be a less bitter place. But whilst he wants to underline the unique pains of that sin, He also wants to stress the ubiquity of sin. 
It's everywhere. It's in everyone. And here he repeats the point that he made back in verse 20. And this is his final word about wisdom in the chapter. Let me read from verse 27. Look, says the teacher, this is what I've discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things, while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God created mankind upright but they have gone in search of many schemes. Now, of course, verse 28 is a tricky one in our cultural moment. And I'm happy to admit that if I were writing a poem about the pervasiveness of human sin, I would definitely choose some different words. And I think we can only conclude that in the day that he wrote, the way he expressed himself here was much less likely to alienate people than it is today. But we mustn't be distracted by the verse and miss the point that he's making because I'm convinced that what we have in that verse is just a colourful way of him making the point that all people are sinful. I don't think he really believes there are occasional upright men and literally zero upright women. He's already told us in verse 20 that there's no one on earth who never sins, male or female. And that's his point here again as he reiterates in verse 29, God created us for better things, but we have left his way, every one of us, and we've gone looking for sin, and we continue to find what we seek, each and every one of us. Now, chapters like this one are not easy I've um, certainly found this a difficult sermon to prepare, as I've said to a few of you this week. Not, not least because it is such a fragmentary collection of ideas. It's hard to know how to see the chapter as a unified whole. And I really did want tonight to take you through those different proverbial sayings so we could wrestle together with what being wise in this world involves. But I also wanted to give some thought to in what way this chapter does hold together if at all. I wanted to consider whether there are any major themes that emerge. Perhaps a thought we could walk away with today that would help us see the big picture here and not just the details. So here's, here's where I've landed. It seems to me the teacher would say that wisdom is all about seeing clearly. Seeing ourselves clearly. Seeing the world clearly. And remember, this means welcoming both the joys of wisdom and its griefs. So let me draw these threads together tonight with, with four ways in which I think this chapter tells us seeing clearly helps us to be wise. Number one, seeing our limits clearly. The teacher says we need to see the limits of our life. And that means facing the reality of death. And until you've been to a funeral and learned its lessons, and until you've thought about your own funeral, he says, you haven't yet begun to be wise. And the teacher also says we need to see clearly the limits of our own understanding. 
until we can say, just like he does in verse 23, that we've sought wisdom with determination, but it's beyond us, until we can admit that, we haven't yet begun to be wise. Number two, seeing our world clearly. Because this chapter reminds us, doesn't it, that we live in a world of corruption, a world of anger, a world of bad times as well as good, a world where some are killed by their own wicked foolishness and others are destroyed by their pursuit of righteousness. It's a world where people curse each other. It's a world where no one is without sin. And the teacher reminds us that until we look at that reality squarely, we're not being wise. So those who think the world is a wonderful place and who close their eyes to its darkness, he says, are not wise. And those who would tell you that the world is making irresistible progress and that human beings are more and more enlightened with every generation, he would tell you, they're not wise. About 15 years ago, the Australian country singer, Casey Chambers, released a very famous song called Ignorance. And in it, she talks about how uncomfortable it is to read the newspaper, to watch the TV, to listen to the news on the radio. And the most, the most famous line in the song is, I think, very poignant. And if you can excuse the language, it reflects the point that Ecclesiastes is making. She's saying, if you're not pissed off at the world, then you're just not paying attention. By which she meant that many people are just ignoring the shape the world is really in. And that, the teacher says, is the opposite of wisdom. Which, of course, leads to the third thing, seeing our sin clearly. And and this is actually the pulse of the chapter, I think. The teacher says that true wisdom has deep roots in an awareness of how corrupt we really are. And, of course, that's the reason the world is broken too, isn't it? The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And until we can see our hearts clearly, we're not wise. So where does all that leave us? Ecclesiastes 7 says that those who seek for wisdom must be prepared for grief. And many remain foolish because they only want the wisdom that consists of neat answers and happy thoughts. But those who gain true wisdom learn to see reality for what it is and to grieve it. My young friend Spencer seeks for wisdom. But as he grows up, he needs to learn not just that there's a God who wakefully watches over his people, Happy thought, neat answer. He also needs to learn that one day he's going to die and he needs to learn that between now and then the world is a war zone and he needs to learn that the key battlefield is within his own mind and heart. He needs to see those things clearly. Otherwise, he'll be a foolish person. bit bleak 
is that a pretty negative picture of Spencer's future? Not to mention a bleak picture of your life and mine. Is there any hope here, you might ask? Well, I guess what the teacher says to us is that there's certainly no hope in just putting on your rose-coloured glasses. There's no hope in wishful thinking or in just choosing not to pay attention. Perhaps he'd actually say that under the sun there really is no hope for a perfect life, for perfect joy, for perfect righteousness. I guess the implication of his teaching is that there's, there's no hope like that. Not unless, unlikely though it might be, you could find someone who could actually conquer death. Not unless you could find someone who didn't discover that wisdom was beyond them, someone who could know profound and far-off thoughts. Not unless you could find someone who, who could just be more than angry with the world and its brokenness, someone who could actually fix it someone who could change the world with justice and love. Not unless you could find someone who actually had some sort of solution to human sin. No hope unless you could find someone like that. If only we could. Uh, My guess is that the author of Ecclesiastes may not have been able to even imagine a day when someone could write a letter to a group of Christians and say something like this. Romans chapter 3, if you're interested. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would make us wise, that you would give us both the joys and the griefs of wisdom that you would enable us to see clearly the world we live in the profound limitations we live with the sin which flows out of our own hearts but help us too father we pray to be wise enough to see the lord jesus in whom is true joy and perfect righteousness and eternal hope, the one who meets us in our sin and who justifies us and makes us your children. Hear our prayer, we ask. Make us wise like that. In Jesus' name.